All right, Genesis 43. We're going to tear through two chapters. They kind of hold together. Father, I thank you for the wonder of birth. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of life. I thank you for the multiplied blessings that each one of us can look back over our own lives and see, see your hand, see your goodness, see your grace. We thank you during this season as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Savior, the one who brings peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We pray that even tonight, Lord, as we glimpse his glory, we pray that we would be being conformed to that same image, that we would be those that are capable of going back into our city and our homes and retelling that story of salvation and transformation through our own actions and our own lives. So we ask that your word would dwell richly in us and empower us, that your spirit would be hovering over the word even tonight, bringing order to it, understanding to it, and then applying it to us. So move, we pray this in your name, amen. So we're now in a section that I just call school. He's taking, Joseph is taking the 10 brothers that sold them into slavery and he's putting them through an exam. And grades don't matter so much here. Uh, they just need to pass. I don't know if grades really ever matter. Do they really matter? I had a, a, a friend up in Portland who went to a different seminary. He's a pastor. And he gave this great little story. And he tells about being in a class. They had just finished an assignment. They turned it in. It had been graded. It was, and the professor was giving it back to everybody. And one of the students received back his assignment and he had a B on it. And so he wasn't happy about that. So in the class, it wasn't a big class. He's like, you give me a B? this is A work, man. I did A work here. I do not deserve a B. And so the professor's like, well, you know, I read it and that's kind of what I thought, I thought it was a B. He's like, there's no way. This is A work. So the professor grabbed his paper, scratched out the B, wrote an A, handed it back to him and said, you can have your A, but you'll always be a B preacher. Ooh, do grades matter? Ooh, I'm just like, man, I'm glad I didn't have him as a professor. So they, they're gonna get graded here and all they need to do is pass it. They need to pass this test. Grades don't matter, pass it. And Joseph is testing them because he has not seen them for 22 years and he does not know what kind of people they are. Are my 10 brothers still the evil brothers that threw me in a pit and sold me into slavery? Or have they, by the course of change in time, have they become something different? And so he is testing them. 
And I believe that he actually sets up the test and we'll see this. If they are still evil, he would have kept Benjamin with him and not sent Benjamin home with them. That Benjamin would have been safe with him in Egypt and he would have excluded the 10 brothers away from him. So he sets it up no matter what happens, if they fail, Ben stays with him. And Benjamin is his only full brother. The other 10 brothers are half brothers. So he's gonna keep Ben if they fail the test. And if they pass, good things happen, okay? So let's jump in. Chapter 43, verse one. If you don't know, they've already made one trip down, bought grain. He was severe and mean to them. That's, they, they, they don't like him. They call him the man. He's still in disguise. Uh, they're running out of food now and that's where we pick it up. Chapter 43, verse one. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him, was in the answers to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Verse six is so classic. Jacob essentially says to his boys, didn't I train you to lie? Why'd you tell him the truth, right? Didn't I, didn't I train you? But haven't you seen me in my whole life? Don't you know how to lie? Why did you tell this man the truth? I mean, it's so funny. So, He's now laying this intense guilt trip on his sons. And they're like, we had no idea he was gonna say this. Come on, are you kidding me? Parents, don't guilt trip your kids. Don't guilt trip them by saying, hey, why aren't you more like a sibling or a friend? Don't do those things. And Jacob here at the end of his life, he is actually living his life by looking in the rear view mirror. So he is trying to change life by looking in the rearview mirror at things that have happened before that he cannot change or control. If you live your life looking in the rearview mirror, you're gonna wreck what's in front of you. And that's what he's doing. He's wrecking his, his sons now. It's, a, it's a, just a bummer. So the brother's answer, verse seven, it was weird, dad. It was like he knew us or something. He was asking us all these questions. I mean, what were we supposed to do? It was really strange. It's like he knew us, dad. So here's the big problem. Now, we're gonna, I just wanna take a quick kind of glance back at Jacob's life. And what you see about Jacob, he's, his story is concluding. 
is Jacob is what I call a goal guy. His motivation for life was certain goals that he had. That's a very dangerous way to live. So he had a goal to get the birthright. And because he had that goal of getting the birthright, he would do anything then to get that birthright. Lie, dress up, steal, do whatever is necessary because his goal was a birthright. So there are two main motivators for how you live your life. Goals, like Jacob, or values. If you're a goal-driven person, then what happens is your values are a slave to your goals. So if your goal is this, then your values will just change so that you can meet your goal. So Jacob had a goal, get the birthright. His values just changed whatever is necessary so that he could get his goal. It's dangerous to live as a goal-oriented person. You are capable of incredible evil when you live just for your goals. He has a goal now, protect Ben. And so he's saying to his sons, you should have lied. So his values now are being conformed to that. If you do that, look out. If your goal is to make money, look out. You can be capable of all kinds of wickedness in order to make money. If your goal is to raise successful kids, look out. Does anybody remember Wanda Holloway? I think it was like 15 years ago. She wanted her daughter to be successful, wanted her to be on the cheerleading team and she got beat out. And so she hired a hitman to kill the little girl that beat her out. Do you remember that? Why? Because her goal was, I want my child to succeed. And because she had that goal, then she was capable of all kinds of wicked things. We're not to be goal-oriented people. We're to be those that values then drive our goals. So the gospel is Jesus comes, gives you a new heart, a new set of values. And our highest values are two things, love God, love people. And if you keep those values at the center of your being, then guess what? Your goals will line up and you'll end up living a godly, right life. Jacob though, goal-driven. Be careful of goals. Goals can be good, but only when they bow to the higher value of the gospel and the kingdom and loving God and loving people first. So Jacob, really, you look at his life, it's one of his main problems. Judah, the one guy who has some common sense is like, buddy, dad, we're gonna die unless you do this. So their father, verse 11, said to them, if it must be, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother, arise, and a go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took the present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So now he's like, okay, I'm trapped. Get together some nuts and some twigs for the number two dude in Egypt. 
Like he really needs that kind of stuff. All right. And then he, he's, he's, he's trapped, right? Joseph, Jacob is trapped. And he kind of has his scheming, which is what he did with Esau. You know what? First of all, I'm going to send out all these gifts. And then that night he wrestles with Jesus, I believe, or you would say God the Son. He, he wrestles with God the Son. So he's now doing the same thing. I get together a present. Maybe I, can, maybe I can win him with this present. And then as a last ditch effort, what does he do? He prays, right? All right, may God grant you mercy. And then it's not a very good prayer, is it? It's not a prayer of faith, is it? Because how does he end it? If you all die, then you're all dead. That's not a very faith-filled prayer. But you know what? This prayer drives the rest of the book of Genesis. This is what happens. Actually, it's even better than he prays. It's Ephesians 3.20, exceedingly abundantly above all that he could ask or think. I love that. Don't make prayer your last option. Don't. Prayer works. Jesus says, if you have a mustard seed of faith, you can say this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. We should be a group of people that are prayers. Jacob, it's almost like an afterthought and yet it's gonna be better than he could even pray. So verse 15, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. In every house, there'd be a dungeon underneath it. So they're like, uh-oh. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. That's funny. The number two dude in Egypt wants your donkeys. He saw your donkeys like, I gotta have those donkeys. Do whatever's necessary. I've got to have those donkeys. That's like going to Bill Gates' house and him wanting your Dotson B210, one of the great primer spots and it backfires in the school zone. Get that car. I mean, it's just hilarious. So they went up to the steward of the house and spoke with him and at the door of the house. And they said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of our sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. So here it happens. They're legitimately scared. Like what's gonna happen? What are we gonna do? And they interpret everything, even the gift of money through their guilt. Like they had just a guilty conscience. So instead of seeing the money in their sacks as God's generosity to them, they see it, as you remember from last Wednesday, they see it as an accusation. Of, oh no, we're gonna be accused of being thieves. 
So they looked at everything through the lens of guilt. Did your mom ever play this game on you when you were a kid? Where she would come up to you some day or some weekend and be like, Matt, do you have anything you need to tell me? Did you ever do that? <laughs> I do it to my kids now. And I'd be like, well, man, I actually have a list of things. Can you like give me a hint where I should start so I don't give you too much information? Because you kind of have this guilty conscience. And so you're always like, oh no, she's found out. She knows I did something, right? That's the way these guys have lived now for 22 years, right? And they blurt out, they're instantly like, they start offering too much information. Hey, we did this, you the money that came. And he's like, God is being generous to you. Just receive it. God is being generous to you. I have, we have the money. It must've been God that gave you this. They couldn't receive it. They couldn't receive God's generosity because of their guilt. I think too often we see Jesus kind of like these brothers, see Joseph. It's like, I call it bumper sticker theology. If you've ever seen the bumper sticker, it says, uh, Jesus is coming back and boy, is he ticked. I think a lot of people live that way. A lot of Christians do. They live under almost like this weight of, oh no, I can't enjoy life. I have a weight of guilt on me. So I interpret anything in my life through this weight of guilt. And then I can't see God's generosity. I can't see God's goodness to me because all I can see is my guilt. That's all I look at everything through. I'm guilty. I miss church. Oh, God must be angry at me. We were supposed to read through the Bible this year. I really wanted to read through the Bible, but I just couldn't quite do it. Oh, God's mad at me. I'll make it up. I'll give him a gift. I'll go Wednesday night. That'll make him happy, <laughs> right? People think exactly that way. That's not Jesus. That's Santa Claus. Santa Claus makes lists and he checks it twice to see who's not or nice. That's not Jesus. If you struggle with that, memorize Romans chapter eight, Verse one, it says this, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, period, right? It's not Santa theology. It's Jesus generosity theology. There is that now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I tell people this, that are all condemned. I say, okay, when Jesus died on the cross for you, how many of your sins were in the future? How many? All of them, right? He knew it all. And he still said, I will adopt you and bring you into my home. It's, it's, it's amazing grace. Let it be amazing grace. So right now we have uh, a four-month-old Harry in our house. And we've had some foster kids and all of them have been super special and have a, have a, have a, a part in my heart. But we've never had a baby before. From the time that a baby was born, that's not my baby and it, it's, it's like, it's strange. Your heart as a human is wired for babies. I don't know, it, it, there is something God has put in you. I, I, I think for the first time I can understand adoption. Like I would truly adopt Harry if it was that opportunity. Like it just, he just coming home and Harry is a, he's a more difficult baby than ours because uh, he's just a loud sleeper. That's all there is to say. He is just, he is the loudest, just congested, just gurgling, making noise. It's all night long. So I'm awake all the time at night. And uh, he's also formula fed. So all of my kids weren't formula fed. If you formula feed a baby, 
Uh, number one, it's been really fun for me because I get a formula feed him and babies can multitask. He can fall asleep and still eat at the same time. It's amazing. He'll be like totally out, just, just sucking it. I'm like, that is awesome, dude. But the other thing about formula is this, they get, I call it formula gas. It is nasty. I'm like, whoa, dude, you're a tiny little creature. How do you make that smell? This is like, oh, wow. In spite of all of that, in spite of all that, I can't wait to get home and to make him smile. Like when I come in the door, I'm looking for Harry because I know this, I can just come up to him and I have this little thing to do. And every time he just cracks this biggest smile and, and then he won't look at me. He'll like, look away. And then he'll like, look back over this way. And then he'll do this. Are you still there? Right? Did you leave? Like, it's just, it's so, so cool. Listen, Jesus can't wait to see you smile. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. These guys missed it. God's being generous to you and you're missing it because you're so full of guilt. Memorize Romans 8, verse one. Jesus can't wait to see you smile. These guys miss it. Joseph comes in, verse 26. And they brought the guys into the house to him and the present that they had with them. And they bowed down to him to the ground. Remember his dream? 11 brothers were bowing down to him. Now it's 11 brothers. Before that, it was 10. Now it's 11. And he inquired about their welfare. How are you guys doing? Is your father well? Well, the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? It's been 22 years since he's seen his dad. How hard is that? And they said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son. This is his full brother. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. That term, God be gracious to you, is used only one other time in the Old Testament. It's used in Numbers chapter six. It's the high priestly prayer of Aaron. Only two times, right here and right there. And Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew, grew warm for his brother. Like the ESV is so awesome. Is anyone reading the ESV? So like, then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. Isn't that just a strange way to put that? He, he's so overwhelmed that he has to go out and cry. So it's like his compassion grew warm. I don't know. Does anyone have anything else? His heart yearned. I like that better because his compassion grew warm. Warm is so like lethargic. No, it didn't. He's like overwhelmed with joy and emotion and everything. No, his compassion grew warm. All right. It's my favorite translation, but it's also funny. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat down before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. So he is able to seat them from oldest Reuben all the way down to youngest Benjamin. Do you know the odds of being able to do that? 
one in 40 million. The way you figure that is you, if, it's, it's 11 times 10 times nine times eight times seven times six times five times four times three times two times one. Massive. So they're like, what is going on with this guy? How does he know this? This was not by chance. So there's something in their brains right now working. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So they expected to have their donkey stolen to be made into servants. And instead what happens? They're given a feast. They expected we're gonna be made servants here and instead they get a feast. Does that remind you of a story in the New Testament? How about the prodigal son? I'm gonna come home. Now worthy be your son, make me into a servant. And what does the heavenly father do? Throws them a giant feast. And you have here a, a kind of caste system And if you read history, this Greek guy, Herodias said, even in his time, which would be 1500 years later, he said the Egyptians wouldn't eat or use the utensils of any other people because they didn't eat cows, they were sacred, and they wouldn't eat the females of any animals, that females of all animals were sacred. So if you'd ever cut a piece of meat that was a female or a cow, they would never use those utensils. So you're seeing that right here. He doesn't eat with them, but he's actually a Hebrew. It's kind of an ironic thing there. So why does Joseph do this? Why does he bring them in and throw this feast for them? If I was Joseph, you know what I would do? I'd be like, listen, I'm Joseph, and this is what you did to me. 22 years. I was a slave, worked my tail off, falsely accused of rape, put into prison, for seven, eight years, forgotten about in prison, you guys did this to me. But he doesn't. Instead, he throws them a feast. He asks about their welfare. How are you guys doing? How's my father? How are you guys? How is he able to do that? Because it's pretty rare to have somebody be able to push all that stuff down and not unload, just back up the truck and dump it on them for what they had done to him. Here's what I think happened. Jesus says this, it's Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. 28. He says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I think Joseph for 22 years had understood that he could cast all of his cares upon God because he cared for him. So he'd been unloading these burdens for 22 years and he was able then not to have to unload it on somebody else. He cast all this thing, all this junk on God. And now he's just able to care for people. I think it's a true key. For me not to unload on people, I better be unloading on my burden bearer. I better be unloading on the one that can take it. Because when I do that, then I'm set free to care for people instead of unload and keep them in hard situations. So amazing. And he tests them. So they start the meal and they're sitting there and they bring out the meal to the first 10 brothers, right? And they bring out little communion cups full of wine and they get to Benjamin and it's a big gulp. And then they bring out 
the meat and it's petite steak, petite steak, petite steak, petite steak, all the way down. But to Benjamin, it's half a rack of lamb. And then they bring out pieces of cake to everybody and it's a whole cake for Benjamin. What is Joseph doing when he does that? He's trying to get them to be envious because that was the sin that caused them to throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery. The favorite son now is being treated better than the other 10 were. How will you respond to that? Will you get mad? Remember when your sibling got more than you, what did you do? You beat him up, right? You took it from them. If it was a younger sibling, you took it. Will, will I get a glint of this? Is there still that envy in them, the same envy that caused them to do what they did to me? Is it there now? So Joseph is testing them, but instead what happens? They drank and were merry with him. This is the first time in the entire life of Joseph that it's said that there was merriness. And up to this point, not that there was any merriness, but he's never mentioned it for the first time. He's around a table. He's testing his brothers. They're not envious and he's happy. I think there's some kind of crazy truth to that. There's something brilliant to be around a table of your family when you're reconciling and you're being brought back together. There's something brilliant. That's why I love the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, to be around a table laughing and having a great time with family. The first time Joseph is merry, right? So it goes on, chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of all his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, And put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. He didn't keep their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? This is that raw and tove words that are huge throughout the book of Genesis, actually the Old Testament. Raw is evil, tove is good. Why have you repaid raw for tove? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Then he overtook them. He spoke to them these words and they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Come on, we already proved that we didn't take money when it was left to us. Then, Whichever of your servant is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servant. Again, like Reuben, when Reuben gave his stupid instructions to his dad, hey, if we lose Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. Again, they just make a, a rash statement. They should have just kept their mouths shut. This guy just ignores them. He just says, no, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. So it's set up now. Whoever has the cup, is gonna go into slavery, and the rest of you 
and go home. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Imagine this. You are a foreigner in a foreign land. It's a tiny group of people. And now you're accused of a grievous crime. Have you ever been like at an international border or something like that where you have to have your bag searched? It's happened to me one time. I was coming back from Japan. Uh, Oh, it's an 11 and a half hour flight. I didn't sleep much. Got off in San Francisco. Uh, I grabbed my backpack. I'm walking through this hallway. And as I'm walking, I saw this guy, this guard, you know, gun on the side and creaking leather and all that. And he's got this little beagle, like this just cute little beagle. And the beagle's like, he's like making his way uh, against the flow of traffic. We're all coming in, the beagle's just coming. So I'm walking along, just not even thinking about it. And, and the beagle just stepped right in front of me. And so I stop and I'm kind of, kind of I, I wasn't thinking. I look at the dog and I'm like, hey, buddy, how are you? And I start like petting the dog. And I just see the leash just get tight. <laughs> and I kind of look up and there's this massive forearm. I look up at the guy and the guy's like, do you have any idea what this dog is? I'm like, no. He's like, it's a drug sniffing dog. Do you know why this dog just stopped you? Good judge of character? He likes me? I don't know. (laughs) He's like, no, drugs. Take off your backpack. They're right in the middle of where people are just walking by. I'm like taking everything off. Then I had to go get my bag and then pull it out. And then I'm starting to worry like, man, what if somebody planted something on me? You know, what if, what if it's a situation like this? I'm done, you know, the dog's, well, didn't have anything. It was just like, it was actually frightening. Like just the, the experience, like what if somebody put something on this or what if, like, wow, powerless. That's how these guys would feel, powerless. We can't do anything here. doesn't matter if it's a setup. You get busted in China or Iran or North Korea, you're done. There's no justice there. There's no system there. It's just their word against yours and it's their word that's gonna win. So they're in this situation right now there. And like the steward, he ups the drama, doesn't he? He knows where it's at, but what does he do? Starts with the oldest and works his way down. Like each bag that's empty, each bag that's empty. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. They get to 10. They're like, no way Benjamin would have taken it. Oh, and they rip their clothes we don't understand how important clothes are because we can just go to Old Navy and get a t-shirt for a buck. This would be their one change of clothes. When they rip their clothes, that meant for as long as they are till they get home, they're wearing those ripped clothes. It'd be like you or me taking a chainsaw to our car, like that level. This is the anguish that they feel, right? Brutal, totally, totally powerless. So they load up, head home, head back to Joseph. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? There's all kinds of debate. What does that mean? (laughs) Was Joseph into divination? Was he into that? I don't think so. He's just playing the Egyptian right now. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? 
What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. They still interpret everything through a guilty conscience. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So Joseph has it set up. Will you guys sell out another son of Rachel? Like you did in chapter 37, when I cried from the pit and begged for you guys to let me go. And you said, no, we're planning. Plan A is we kill you. Plan B is we sell you into slavery. Be quiet and you'll figure out what it is pretty quick. Are you those same kind of people? Have you changed? So Judah, verse 18, went up to him and said, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. This is probably the first time Joseph knew the narrative that his 10 brothers were telling everyone else. Oh, he died. Because he didn't know this. He didn't know the narrative of what had happened back at home. For the first time he hears, oh, everybody there believes I'm dead. That's why there's no search party. And he alone is left of his mother's children. His father loves him. Then you said to my servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Then we went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go again, buy us a little food. And we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also down from me and harm happens to me, you shall bring down my gray hairs to evil in Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father? The boy is not with me. I fear to see the evil that would find my father. One of the most beautiful texts in the book of Genesis. Incredible. Redemption, 
substitution, caring for a dad who treated him as a second-class kid, just incredible. Can God change people? Can God change your enemy? Right? That's even a harder one. Yeah, God can change me because he's got a lot to work with. But my enemy, not him, right? We're seeing God change enemies. Note two things and we're done. First, Joseph remains unchanged by Egypt. So he's in the pagan capital of the known world at that time. And he's loving people. He's serving people. He's forgiving people. He even is given a pagan wife. It's the daughter of the high priest of Pharaoh, the the big religious dude in all of Egypt. It's his daughter. And yet he has kids and he names his kids godly names. He's renamed, if you remember that from last Wednesday, Zaph Paneah or something like that. He's renamed that, but you know what? He never uses that pagan name. He always uses the name Joseph. He said, no, you're not gonna change me. My identity is not pagan. My identity is I am a son of my great-grandfather Abraham and I serve his God. That's his identity. So my question always is this, how did he do that? 17-year-old in that kind of culture with that kind of pressure being you know, a woman throwing himself at him and yet he remains unchanged by Egypt. It wasn't by church because he wasn't able to go to church. It wasn't by reading the Bible because he'd known a Bible. It wasn't because he was in a family because his family wasn't there. What's the one thing Joseph could do? Pray. The one thing, the one weapon Joseph had this entire 22 years that I think kept him bounded was prayer. It's like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 17, where he says, everyone has abandoned me, but God stood by me. He didn't have a Bible then either. He asked for a Bible to be brought to him. He didn't have a coat, asked for a coat to be brought. Prayer. That's something you can do anytime, any place. It's when the enemy is attacking you, you remind him of Romans 8, verse one. No, you're not gonna condemn me for that. It's when you feel welling up in you, a spirit of bitterness, you, you remind yourself, no, I've been forgiven much. That God can change even my enemies, even the worst of people like the Judas. It's prayer. Joseph, I believe, was a man of prayer. And that kept him unchanged in Egypt. You wanna stay unchanged in your Egypts? Be a prayer person. Doesn't have to be long, huge prayers. It's just, God, here's a situation. I'm gonna pray right now before I enter into it. Help me. I'm gonna cast my cares upon you. I'm gonna not trust in my own wisdom, but I want your wisdom. Help me in this situation. So he's unchanged. And then secondly, he allowed his 10 brothers to be changed. So he didn't imprison them in this way that they always were, right? He actually gave them opportunity to prove that they were trustworthy, that they had become honest people like they claimed. I think sometimes we don't let people change. We have them pigeonholed as a certain kind of person. Nah, that's what they are. And we don't know if we're right or wrong. Joseph didn't know if he was right or wrong. So he gave them opportunity, prove it. I'm gonna give you opportunity to regain trust. I've forgiven you because I cast that thing on God. I'm good. 
but now I'm gonna actually give you opportunity to begin to regain my trust through this process that he begins to watch them and lets them change. And Judah, when you think about Judah, Judah had a massive change, massive change from where he was. And I always think about this in my own life. I go back to my life and I use this term. I won the lottery in a lot of ways in my life. I was never jumped into a gang in Grants Pass. The Bloods and Crips weren't looking for me, right? That's pretty good. Some people, some young men did not have that same option. Every day when they walked to school, it was a battle for them, them not to get stuck. I didn't have drugs being dealt out of my home. I didn't have chaos and fighting and craziness happening in my home. I didn't have those things. I had a stable home, a mom that loved me, three square meals, clean clothes. I won a whole bunch of lotteries. And there are other people that they didn't win those lotteries. And so they started out on the road of life miles behind me just because of the lotteries that I won. Not because of anything I had done, just because of the family I had born into, the mom, the home, the city, those things. And so I should always have an empathy for people that started on roads way back. Judah started on a road way back. He had a dad that treated him like a shield for his favorite kids. A dad that probably treated him very, very poorly his whole life. And so he has moved now, when you read over this, just how Judah speaks about his dad, how Judah is willing to take the place of Benjamin for the same dad that had hurt him. It's awesome. He's moved so far on that road. We need to be a group of people that celebrate people's movement. If you read the epistles, you find this over and over with Paul. He'll say this, I heard of your faith. I heard of your works. I heard what you're doing there. And I'm so happy for you guys. He was constantly, he'd almost, you read it, Colossians 1, Philippians 1, Philemon, Ephesians. He begins by just, I can't believe the good report I'm hearing about how you guys have moved down the road of sanctification. I'm so proud of you guys. And when I was thinking about this today, I thought, I don't do that enough. I thought, you know what, this year, I'm going to write a letter when I think about people. And actually, this morning, I thought of a guy. I'm writing him a letter right now. And I'm gonna tell him, he's not doing great, but man, for where he came, he's doing phenomenal right now. I've never told him that. He's a guy I've known for a long time since we were little kids. I said, I'm gonna write him a letter. I'm gonna write him an epistle. I'm gonna say, I'm proud of you because you started way back on this road. And I wanna celebrate the fact that you are moving forward in the faith and encourage you in that and allow you to change. So Joseph remained unchanged through prayer. But secondly, he really allowed people to change around him and gave them opportunity. And I would say this, if you think during this season, of maybe a friend, family member, that you know has had massive change in their life and moved forward, maybe you should write them a letter and tell them, hey, I just wanna let you know, just to encourage you, you're doing awesome. You're doing really awesome. Keep it up. So Jesus, this day, we thank you for the example of Joseph, who in the midst of a very difficult, pagan, sinful, seductive culture, maybe similar to the one that we live in today, 
He's a man that maintained his integrity. Maintained his faith in you. I pray that each person in here, no matter what Egypt we might return to tonight or go to tomorrow, I pray that we would be a group of people like Joseph that maintain our integrity. I'm grateful for Joseph's forgiveness and reconciliation, that he allowed people that had hurt him, he allowed them opportunity to regain their trust, to move forward. He gave them a test to see. I pray for any in here who maybe have had battles with people and are right now facing difficult meals or difficult situations. I pray that you would give us wisdom in those things so that we could move forward around a table full of merriment in this season because we're watching you transform people and reconcile us. That's merry. That's joyful. Give us the hearts that are able to do that, Lord. Give us hearts that know our values are loving you and loving people. And may those two values drive every goal that we have. Forgive me, Lord, where I have taken my goals above values. Forgive me of that, Lord. May I value you and your kingdom and making you beautiful. And may I value people above anything else. May my goals be driven by that. May each of us do that, I pray. Go with us, we ask. May we have listening ears like Solomon so that we might rule well wherever we go. And I pray this in your name, amen.